You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nancy Stoll. I'm a tech reporter at Politico. Uh, so thank you for coming today. We are going to here to talk about the EU-US Privacy Shield. Uh, we have two excellent panelists to discuss this. I think it's fair to say that uh, when you think about the negotiation of this deal, these are two people that were in the room hashing out the particulars. Uh, so we're thrilled to have them here today to be able to provide that level of insight uh, into this, into this uh, the negotiation and the deal. So to my right is Andrea Glorioso. Uh, Andrea is part of the European Union's delegation to the US uh, and is a counselor for the digital agenda and information uh, and communications technology. To Andrea's right is Ted Dean. And Ted is Deputy Assistant Secretary at the US, one of the Deputy Assistant Secretaries of the US Department of Commerce. So thank you. Uh, so, Andrea, we were going to let have Ted have the first word in sort of laying the groundwork for uh, what Privacy Shield is, uh, why it was necessary, how we found ourselves uh, to this point. But uh, I think we'll take that to you now <laughs> uh, to uh, just, if you can just give some background on sort of why, how these negotiations came about and how we found ourselves at this point. Sure. Thank you, Nancy. Um, it was the moment, I guess, everyone. And apologies for the late arrival. The sharing economy is great, but sometimes you get Uber drivers who really have no idea going here. So apologies for that. Um, so uh, I think I will start, if you me, with a little bit of the ground even before the actual negotiations. I think it's important for people to understand what privacy shield is and what it is not. Uh, very briefly, uh, in the European Union, we have the legislation of the professional personal area. And that legislation simplifies very much that prohibits the transfer of personal data from within the European Union to outside the European Union unless certain conditions are met. There are different ways in which these conditions can be met. And one of these is that the European Union, by a proposal of the European Commission, to procedure that perhaps we will have the chance to talk about a little bit later, um, finds that either the domestic legislation of the destination country and for clarity, whether this is the US or any other country in the world, or a sectorial arrangement in the destination country meets the standards of uh, adequacy. So it protects the data, the privacy, and personal data of European citizens in an adequate manner compared to European legislation. And the safe harbor arrangement, agreement, which is what Privacy Shield is going to replace, was one of these sectorial adequacy findings that the European Union uh, agreed, uh, negotiated with the US and then agreed internally back in 2000. And to the safe harbor arrangement, as many of you know, companies which uh, have self-certified uh, respect of the so-called safe harbor principles in the US uh, could uh, legally receive personal data transfer from the European Union to those companies, and only those companies which have agreed to the safe harbor, self-certified compliance with the safe harbor principles, uh, which, by the way, this was self-certification with an enforcement component, which I'm sure that can explain in more detail, but broadly speaking, uh, it was uh, mostly left to the responsibility of the Federal Trade Commission under the Unfair Deceptive Act, Article uh, 5 of the Unfair Deceptive Act. So the FTC, Article 5 of the FTC Act, which relates to Unfair Deceptive Practices. Now, what happened is that already in 2013, uh, the European Commission identified, uh, and this followed uh, and I say this between airports, the European Union does not have an official position on the matter, but following the so-called small regulations, uh, there were significant political pressures from many parts across Europe uh, 
to suspend the safe harbor arrangement because it was believed or some claimed that by the, by the transportation to safe harbor, US intelligence agencies were, and law enforcement agencies were obtaining uh, undue access to the personal data of the citizens. To be absolutely clear, and this is on the record, the European Commission refused to suspend the safe harbor arrangement. But after further analysis and after discussion with our American allies, we decided that there were a number of issues within that safe harbor agreement that, that warranted further work strengthening. And this was 2013. And at that point, we initiated negotiations with the US, conversations with the US to understand where we could strengthen the safe harbor arrangement. And then in October 2015, the European Court of Justice, following uh, it's called a reference to the preliminary ruling, but as a consequence of the national case which had been shared in Ireland, uh, initiated by Maxime Schrems, a European Union Council citizen, the European Court of Justice announced the safe harbor arrangement. This was October 2015. And at that point, uh, the negotiations between Europe and the US, uh, between the European Commission representing the Union and the Department of Commerce uh, representing uh, the US, uh, in the US I think it's fair to say that at that point the negotiations uh, became a little bit more urgent than they have been until that moment. And the point I'm trying to make is that it's not like in October 2015 uh, we woke up uh, and not that, not me, not a lot of the people who woke up and said, oh my god, we need to start from scratch. The negotiations that we concluded in February this year were indeed initiated uh, more than two years ago. They were accelerated after the decision of the European Court of Justice to announce the problem. Uh, I should also point out that a number of the remarks and the reasons uh, uh, on the basis of which the European Court of Justice announced the 2005 decision were indeed elements that the European Commission had identified as items where the separate arrangement needed to be strengthened. Be it as it may, we accelerated the negotiation and after a week, a lot of negotiating sessions and discussions uh, and, and trips and the conferences and so on and so forth. Uh, on the 2nd of February 2016, uh, uh, we, both of us, both the the Commission announced a political agreement on the privacy shield as the new Safe Harbor Act. The Safe Harbor 2.0, that was the, the operational name the previous world negotiation, uh, the privacy shield was agreed on the 29th of February. 2016, the European Commission uh, published, this is all public, uh, published the so-called draft adequacy assessment, uh, where all of you who are interested can see what actually what the draft privacy shield decision contains. I will stop here, although I, I think that we also have the opportunity to explain that I use the terms draft adequacy assessment because to be 100% clear, we have reached agreement between the US government and the European Commission on what we believe we as executives of the Union, of the European Union, the USA, believe is the right agreement. On our side, we still have some steps to complete in terms of consulting a number of our member states and other entities, and I'm happy to go into more detail at the stage. But again, just to be 100% clear, what we have now is a draft of assessment that it is not yet. For European Union. Excellent, thank you. Just before we switch to, to Ted, if I can ask you, can you give a one sentence elevator pitch explanation for why a privacy shield is necessary? How do you explain this to the sort of average European Union citizen? Uh, <laughs> one sentence. Well, 
sentences, if you allow me to The first sentence is that it was necessary because if our was enough, then we can go to justice. So we didn't have anything uh, like that, so we, we felt we needed uh, any arrangement. We feel that it's also useful because it does introduce better means of redress for European citizens, uh, and it does introduce uh, better means uh, to uh, European citizens to understand what is happening to their data for those cases in which intelligence and law enforcement agencies in the US need, as all democratic societies do, need to access the data of European citizens that is contrary to the privacy shield. And again, I'm happy. this is where the other I'm happy to give more details okay. when the other definition of its, uh, its course. Okay, excellent. Can you talk a little bit about how that looked, that process looked from your perspective? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks, first, for the opportunity for uh, a chance to, to meet you all today. Um, at first, I, mean, I, I agree with completely with the summary that Andrea just gave and, and uh, the sort of announcement we made on February 2nd, the text we released on February 29th, are really the product of uh, two years of um, uh, very intensive work uh, with the commission. I think for this audience in particular, it's important. I'm, I'm here representing public commerce, but this obviously uh, uh, cuts across some issues we were discussing, cuts across a number of parts of the administration, and so there's a very robust interagency process on, on our side of the table uh, with Department of State, Department of Justice, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, um, and the national security issues, and then also uh, uh, the Federal Trade Commission and actually the Department of Transportation, which is the backstop for a, a, a piece of this agreement. So um, a lot of work that, that went into the agreement we reached. I think the one you know, element I'd add that Kyle Zambria made and also your, your last question about why this was so important is um, you know, this is extremely important privacy and protecting people's privacy. It's also extremely important to um, businesses and the transatlantic digital economy. So just to think back to um, Safe Harbor uh, program started in 2000. Uh, over the uh, 15 years of its operation, grew to have 4,000 companies certified at Department of Commerce, over 4,000 companies. So, just to again, maybe in interest to this audience, that mechanics of how it works company certifies to the Department of Commerce that they are complying with privacy principles that we've negotiated and agreed to with the Commission. Um, those privacy principles aren't necessarily required under U.S. law, so they're not, in and of itself, uh, it's not enforceable that, that, that a company would necessarily uh, comply with those principles. But because a company certifies to the Department of Commerce and makes a public rep representation that they will comply with these principles, that public representation is then enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission. So it's a way, uh, it's a bridge that takes principles that you need to follow to transit for uh, uses and data and bring it into the you know, U.S. legal system in a legally enforceable way. So we needed to find some way to create that bridge. It's number one. Number two for companies, um, you know, this is most often associated in sort of press and discussion with the largest internet companies who are obviously among those companies that move uh, the largest number of people's data. But you can tell by the fact that we have 4,000 plus certified companies that it is all types of companies that are involved and large number of uh, SMEs. So it's not only the data that might be captured in a web search history or captured in a email or captured in a social network, but very basic business functions. So a uh, small company hires two people in London 
if they want to move their employees' data back to the United States and comply with the privacy laws, they might certify under safe harbor. If you are a company selling product in, in Europe and have warranty data, you might use safe harbor. If you are a pharmaceutical company and have patient data, you might use safe harbor. Um, so all types of very basic business functions. And I think when, as Andrea outlined, we worked at this uh, very intensively for two years and we're working, um, I think both sides really constructively to get to agreement, but in, in, it's, as many things in government, um, uh, they take time. Uh, and we didn't have a hard deadline, but the Court of Justice decision was a hard deadline because um, at that moment, uh, you had 4,000 plus companies who went from having a valid legal basis for transfers to not having a valid legal basis for transfers, and the prospect of um, uh, either halting certain types of operations, which we then needed the data to, to um, uh, uh, perform those operations, or facing enforcement actions in Europe where they might have been fined or faced orders to stop transferring data. So um, a, a lot was at stake. Uh, we think the agreement that we reached um, in February is a really significant achievement for uh, protecting privacy. Uh, it's a really significant achievement for providing greater certainty um, to business and um, responds in a very robust way to uh, the Commission's original 13 recommendations from November 2013 when we began our negotiation, but also to uh, the points that the Court of Justice had raised in their case. So, um, as Andre outlined, we're in the midst of the approval process. Uh, uh, we're working very closely with the Commission and colleagues in Europe to provide additional information, explain what we've done, and make sure folks understand um, exactly what's there as they, as they do that evaluation as part of the approval process. Um, but we're also conscious that there is, um, I think everyone expects that there uh, may be a legal challenge in the future, that this might end up back in the Court of Justice. Uh, and I think, uh, but I think our conclusion and the conclusion of the, of the commission, I think you all said this one, is it meets that standard and, and, that, and that we will uh, withstand a legal challenge when we, when we face one in the future. But, more to talk about. Uh, a quick process question. If the court, European Court of Justice had not given you a firm a hard deadline, as you mentioned, uh, when they were ruling in October, how close were you to a deal? We were, we were, we were very close. We've been at it for, for two years. I think part of the process at the end of the negotiation was we actually had achieved a lot, um, uh, uh, covered a lot of the ground we needed to cover, but then we also had a, you know, uh, uh, um, thoughtful um, but also complex court decision and we had to sit down with, if you look at the um, uh, package that we released on February 29th, it's over 100 pages, we got an over 50 page court decision and we really had to sit down and say, um, you know, what have we done here that, that already addresses things that are in the court decision? As Andrea said, there was a lot that, that was. But there were some other things where we thought, well, we need to um, go back and, and, and look at what uh, more we need to do to make sure that this is a uh, uh, durable agreement that, that would withstand any future challenge. Okay, excellent. So you both mentioned that you negotiators from the U.S. and you reached a political consensus and still going through the formal approval process. What does that look like? What more information is being asked for? And if you can handicap the odds of, of, <laughs> of it being approved in, in the near future. Okay. 
No, we want to get you also because that's not up to me, and I'm serious. That's now up to the member states, and if you have a player, so I'm going to explain briefly what the process is going to look like. Uh, if I may ask you before I get into that process, uh, let me just clarify because I kind of mentioned it in passing, and I want to make sure this is crystal clear. We, of course, completely agree with this government in the to say Faro, so the privacy shield, previously Faro, and the privacy shield. Uh, for companies, not only American companies, by the way, so you will get companies who say, that's a shield. Uh, I'm going to keep on saying, say, probably six months or so, I know that. Um, but the previous power, what it will become uh, the question of privacy shield, is not the only legal basis to which personal data can be transferred to the U.S. There are a number of other options within our legislation that are Admittedly more cumbersome and probably more costly for companies to use, but they exist. And I'm saying this because there was a moment, especially when the Court of Justice decision became public, in which people were panicking a little bit. And again, we were very conscious of the seriousness of the decision and the acceleration of the negotiations and proof of that. But the world was not coming to an end. There were always there were other options available. Having said that, in terms of the process, uh, as I mentioned on the 29th of February, the European Commission uh, officially presented uh, the draft of the decision, which was accompanied by, uh, as I mentioned, a substantial number of pages of annexes, uh, including an uh, explanation of how certain parts of the privacy uh, of the privacy shield are going to work, for example, in terms of the alternatives to the resolution system that are now, is now available for the charge for European citizens. Uh, of the arbitration procedure, which is proposed as an additional venue redress for European citizens uh, on how the a new ombudsperson, and this is understand the politically correct way to call uh, that, that's, uh, which is Sandra, ombudsman is actually a Swedish term, uh, and I don't believe it's associated with gender, but we're going to call it ombudsperson, just to be on the safe side. Um, so we present on the 29th of February all that package, uh, now, what's going to uh, what's going to happen at the procedure, which is, by the way, a standard procedure to which all adequacy, all draft adequacy decision become formal adequacy decision. This is not specific to the privacy issue. It's not specific to the U.S. It's a procedure before we mention the case. So we need to have the non-binding, to be clear, but very very important opinion of the Article 29 working party. Which uh, were all the 28 uh, uh, national data protection, European data protection authorities sit. We need to have the non binding, but equally very important opinion of the European data protection supervisor, which is the data protection authority with responsibility of the person, the processing of personal data of European Union institutions. I'm so sorry, can I ask you to play? Because we don't have the data protection authorities in, in sort of that yeah. defined body. Can you explain what that, how that functions in there? A data protection authority or a privacy authority. Changes name in the member state, but uh, they are independent administrative authorities. They are they were created under the 1995 directive. They are independent of the national government, and their job is mainly some of their tasks, slight tasks, slightly change from member state to member state, but broadly speaking, they have responsibility to investigate cases uh, of possible non-compliance uh, with, uh, uh, with privacy rules, uh, enforce on the first stage at the administrative level, those rules. Uh, the decisions of the decisions of the authorities are always, always, uh, um, I, 
principles that uh, companies commit to in terms of their handling of data and the protection of privacy. So that this is sort of a update and and uh, expansion of um, the safe harbor principles. And so that was a negotiated text. It's new. There's a number of new changes. There are a number of things where uh, we've done more to enhance the privacy protections related to the notices that go to EU citizens, related to onward transfer where the privacy shield company receives data and sends it on to another uh, company, a cloud services company, or someone else. There's new new provisions there. So they're looking at that obviously very closely. Then there are commitments from the United States government about how we will implement this. So that's a letter from our um, secretary and a letter from the undersecretary of the Inter uh, International Trade Administration about how Commerce will implement this. There's a letter from Chairwoman Ramirez outlining the Federal Trade Commission's role as an enforcement uh, backstop. Um, there's a letter from uh, Secretary Kerry uh, describing a um, ombudsman, uh, ombudsperson mechanism. It's sweet, I'm not speaking the original Swedish. Um, uh, 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 a mechanism which um, provides a form of redress for when an EU citizen uh, does have uh, concerns about national security or sales intelligence access, they can go to their uh, uh, appropriate institution, their own government. Um, that uh, institution can come to the Department of State, the Office of Undersecretary of Development, um, and she can then, working with Inspector Generals, the Privacy and Civilities Oversight Board, and other um, independent oversight mechanisms we have related to our intelligence community, provide an answer back to the U.S. laws being complied with in the handling of any data. So this was a really important element of meeting the court standard and making sure that we had um, uh, addressed concerns about um, government access to data. Um, so there's a, a letter defining that. That's a new, brand new mechanism that we created. And then finally, there are um, materials that provide assurance uh, to the European Commission about the safeguards and limitations that we do have in place in the United States related to uh, national security, law enforcement, or public interest access to data. And all of those are you know, very robust safeguards that do protect privacy, but they're also complicated bodies of law. So the fact that we're in a several month approval process and EU institutions are taking a very close look at this, um, we think makes sense. It's the part of the process that we should be in right now. And um, what we're doing now is working very closely with the Commission and making ourselves available to um, explain this and then answer questions. And so just last week, um, uh, for example, I was in um, Brussels and we met with uh, uh, the Article 29 Working Party, so this group of data protection authorities, and briefed them. Um, we uh, testified uh, before the uh, European Parliament, uh, explaining uh, the work we've done. And we met with representatives from uh, member states, and so that was, you know, a couple of days last week. But we've been here um, a number of times since the February second announcement of an agreement, and we'll continue to go through this approval process to get all the way through. You know, I think what we've done. Uh, uh, meets the standard that was set out for us, provides very robust privacy protections, and is really important to uh, uh, business and the transatlantic economy, and I think there's a recognition of all of those things, the privacy protections and the importance in Europe. 
So um, uh, we're not, I mean, I say, leaving any chance for it to continue to go. We're going to continue to explain. We're going to continue to answer questions. But I think we're also optimistic that we'll see this all the way through the goal line. Okay, excellent. So Andrea mentioned that the, the original safe harbor was tossed out by the European Court of Justice amid post-Edward Snowden concerns um, about U.S. access to European citizens' personal information, uh, the information being held by some of the bigger U.S. internet companies in particular when it were an issue at that particular case, it was, it was Facebook. Given that under the draft agreement, there are no new concessions about U.S. law. No, nothing has changed on the U.S. intelligence gathering side, particularly tied to the crafting of this agreement. There's a letter from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence assuring that U.S. law is adequate for protecting Europeans' data. Is that resonating with the same folks that initially raised concern about how protected their data is from the U.S. government? Do you want to Yeah, Yeah, it's good call, bad call, come on. Uh, no, actually, there are only good calls here because, um, first of all, I, but I, I would let Ted speak to this, but I want to say that certainly from our perspective, it would not be entirely correct to say that nothing has changed in the US because, as a matter of fact, there have been significant legislative changes uh, that were not triggered, nor requested, to be completely clear, in the context of the safe harbor negotiation, but nonetheless took place. And uh, again, Ted, we may, may want to go into more detail, but from our perspective, PPD uh, 28, uh, or the USA Freedom Act, uh, and a number of other changes have been to the Judicial Redress Act, uh, have been extremely positive uh, in terms of uh, the protection of uh, uh, non-Americans and specifically European citizens uh, and their understanding situation. But most importantly, one uh, uh, now at the European Commission we are not in the habit of commenting uh, this, the, the, the decisions of the European Court of Justice. That is the equivalent of the US Supreme Court in the top court. And we take them as they are and we develop them and we implement what's in there. Having said that, I think that many people uh, seem to have interpreted uh, the decision of the European Court of Justice Insurance ruling as a direct, as if the court was directly commenting uh, on the state of the law in the US. But if you read carefully the decision, what the court, uh, in fact, or the main reasons why the court and not the safe harbor was mostly, I could summarize as, it was, uh, let's be very clear, it was a slap on the wrist on the European Commission, first of all. We are a custom, you know, we get from many customers on the list, and it's normal. If you don't do, you don't fail, or you don't make mistakes, as we say in Italian. Um, because, uh, and also the Irish Judicial Authority, to be clear, which did not investigate uh, stuff that it was supposed to investigate under the existing state of arrangement. But bottom line is, the European Court basically, to simplify very much, told the European Commission that. Uh, you have not done your due diligence in actually presenting in the safe harbor arrangement that certain safeguards for European citizens were in fact in place. Because let us also be clear, in that kind of procedure, it is not the job of the European Justice to take decisions on the laws of the sovereign of the third country, the sovereign country, not directly. This is why I think, and again, I will let Ted perhaps talk more about it, but I really want people not to underestimate the importance of having an official signed, represent signed at the highest levels of the US government representation, clearly stating that this is our legal system, these are the safeguards in place, this is why third parties in this particular case, the European Union and EU citizens, 
can feel safe that our access to data for national security and law enforcement reasons, which incidentally happen all the time in Europe as well, happen in all democratic societies. We all have intelligence agencies, we all have, thanks God, actually, and we all have law enforcement agencies. This representation by the US government was and is extremely important. What was the problem is that until that until that point, uh, we did not have, uh, or we felt with this on our side, that we did not have uh, a clear political, if I may use the word, and we not think it's possible, we did, not, we did not have a clear assumption of political responsibility by the highest level of this government on the way their system worked. We had a lot of op-eds in the New York Times, we had a lot of public statements, but as a sovereign entity, that was not sufficient for us, in particular following the cold ruling, to go ahead. Uh, now, I'm perfectly aware that there are, we are very aware that there are a number of parties out there, including the party that originally started this whole case, which has gone on record saying that they believe that the statements by the US government are completely valueless, they don't have any value, that nothing has changed. We respectfully disagree with that assessment. Uh, if we thought that that were the case, we would not have accepted to conclude the political agreement with the US government, because believe me, we know that will be another cold case. We are as confident as you can be in this kind of processes that we have a solid package if we will have to go in front of the European Court of Justice. But we have no particular desire as the European Commission to be that one of our decisions is struck down again by the European Court of Justice. So if we have reached this point, it's because obviously we believe that what we have been given or what we have agreed to the US government is quite good, is good enough. Okay. Uh, we, we very much agree with Andrea's interpretation of the court case. So I think it's important to go back and, and as Andrea said, read the court case. The, court, the case makes no findings about um, uh, uh, the adequacy of uh, U.S. privacy protections. It makes no findings about government access to data. Um, it makes no findings about practices of the National Security uh, Agency or other intelligence uh, agencies here. And so um, uh, what the court did was say that the uh, European Commission, in evaluating the adequacy of a third country, in this case the United States, should um, evaluate not only then the safe harbor now privacy shield arrangement, but also evaluate the broader legal context. And that's evidently a reasonable position. Uh, if you took uh, uh, the safe harbor arrangement and uh, Europe were to enter that uh, agreement with a totalitarian country somewhere, the fact that there's a national security exception, a law enforcement exception, that protects companies from being put in conflict law situations um, would uh, uh, introduce the risk that the exception would swallow the rule. That in a, in a country without the rule of law, with limitless government access, that exception would, would swallow the agreement. So what the uh, court called on the commission to do was evaluate the broader legal context. Um, they also, the other reason they made no findings um, on U.S. intelligence practices and government access is because they had no uh, information or basis on which to uh, make those findings because the case that was referred to them when it, when it went through their proceedings was um, from an Irish court case that had originated in 2013 
and there just as the way the legal process evolved, there was no further fact-finding. So um, that's not a criticism, that's just a fact of the way the legal question was posed and the way it finally reached the court. Um, and so the, the court wisely refrained from making determinations on something they didn't have a factual basis to make determinations on and, and pointed to the commission to do that. Um, we had been already engaged for almost two years with the commission, um, providing uh, information and briefings for a very uh, senior level in, in Office of Director of National Intelligence, explaining what we do and what we don't do and the limitations and safeguards that are in place. And to um, uh, Andrea's point, I think we uh, uh, obviously believe that the um, safeguards that were in place in 2013 had been uh, mischaracterized as, as this uh, uh, evolved, but that we could also point to very significant reforms captured in Presidential Policy Directive 28, captured in the USA Freedom Act and otherwise, that um, provided the assurance that when the Commission was making this evaluation, they could now say, we've not only looked at Privacy Shield, but, but during having done a full evaluation of the broader legal context, we can say with certainty that we believe that the uh, protections are, are adequate. Okay, so to Nancy, come in one minute. Yeah, so. None of us are capable of short answers. I feel that I need to, so obviously there is an agreement, not only between Ted and myself, but between the European Commission and the US government. Uh, I do, however, feel the need to point out that the European Commission, and this is enshrined the draft ethics decision, which we all hope will become an ethics decision, reserves the right to assess on a yearly basis uh, how this agreement will actually play out. Now, the US is our first and foremost ally, and when there are statements made by the highest political levels of the administration, we take that at face value, just like the US would take at face value what we tell them. But as we say in Italy, trust not verify, and you know, things change and implementation. Sometimes it's not even, you know, it's not another way to do it, just that we think that we have understood each other, but then we get to the implementation phase and discover, okay, it's slightly different than what we have thought. Bottom line, and this is one major, uh, at least from our perspective, a major point of the new privacy shield, the uh, author of assessment and the assessment will be related. This yearly review, to which every year a joint group uh, composed of uh, EOC, Department of Commerce, and the European Commission, plus participation of other protection authorities and intelligence agencies within the decision of how the US government will decide to, to handle this. We will review the situation and the European Commission who serves the right and the prerogative to suspend, if necessary. We didn't do it in 2013 because we thought at the time that it was not necessary, but we reserved that right uh, under, the, uh, under the new privacy shield legislation. I want this to be, to be clear. Having said that, we have worked very hard together, and I want to personally thank Ted and Justin and other colleagues who are, I think they'll get the European passport very soon <laughs> in Brussels or somewhere, but the help that the US colleagues uh, have given us to explain to sometimes difficult interlocutors, let's be very clear, what's actually the legal situation in the US has been valuable, and from the delegation side, we can also explain to US interlocutors how the EU system actually works or doesn't work. Okay, excellent. So we're going to open up for questions. To give you one second, and oh, we have questions. Just very quickly, who came up with the name? I've been curious. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was you? No, 
was not. Oh, it's not. Is it Uton? No. Okay. Uh, let's see right here in the blue coat. Uh, yeah. um, I'd like to know how this affects um, privacy reporting requirements for unclassified law enforcement systems, specifically like privacy impact assessments, system directors notice. Just will be an increase in information required to be reported from those. Will there be additional reporting requirements? Okay. Can everyone hear the question? Okay. And if we, we have a number of questions, so if we can. Charlotte, very quickly, I'm going to take on, in terms of, you, you mean in terms of reports on law enforcement or government access that companies may issue? Uh, that, I don't know, maybe there's an exception for law enforcement information that across from the U.S. So this is actually, Privacy Shield only relates to data that moves from one company to another. There are other agreements and other ways that data is transferred between governments, but this only relates to a company that moves data, a European company or a company based in Europe that moves data to a company based here, that flow of data. And then the government access we're speaking about is, once it's here, um, is there a situation in which there may be national security, law enforcement, or public interest access to data here, but it doesn't change anything related to um, uh, government-to-government -government, uh, sharing of information. The, and then in terms of uh, companies reporting of government access, that's um, you know, uh, defined what's possible under the uh, uh, USA Freedom Act, and that nothing in this agreement changes what's, what's possible in that regard. Okay, excellent. Yeah, no one uh, Let's go over here. That's a question for Andrea. Uh, we're having our own debates about secure, uh, privacy versus security in the U.S. Are European uh, police and intelligence services satisfied with their access to consumer data in Europe under the present arrangement, or is there any possibility of that being reviewed in the wake of recent terrorist attacks? Uh, to be clear, A, you should ask that to law enforcement agencies, because I cannot speak on behalf of law enforcement agencies. B, that doesn't really concern the privacy shield, to be clear, because for the reasons that I said, on a broader context, there is certainly an ongoing discussion in Europe, within the Union, in terms of intelligence and information sharing. I am not aware, but if you wish, I will check with my colleagues who work at Europol, that at the national level, Law enforcement agencies have raised particular concerns in terms of access to data within the European territory. But, you know, this is, is separate and independent from the privacy issue discussions. And if you want to hear us, you should ask, uh, I mean, with respect, you should ask the law enforcement agencies because they have a better grip on what they, they do or they do not need. And they do not necessarily share as their feelings with the European Commission. So. Can I just speak on behalf of all of your are, you, are folks in your um, tracking the iPhone encryption case that we have thrown out here? I certainly am, and uh, <laughs> a few other colleagues are. I can tell you that, yes, obviously, it's, it's of great interest uh, in Europe as well, because it's no mystery that we have similar debates in Europe as well, in terms of uh, what is the level that's of access to data with encrypted amount that law enforcement agencies should have. So, yes, we are following that. Okay, excellent, thank you. Uh, here in the orange Andrea, earlier you mentioned that there was a yearly review process that will be taking place to see whether or not changes have to occur or, or adjustments to the current agreement. Um, does that mean from a startup perspective, an individual that's a startup providing services both in the U.S. and in Europe, that they're going to have to continuously 
monitor and make changes to adapt to whatever these change to whatever your enhancements are. Because it could be catastrophic from a financial standpoint. We're kind of taking our Meanwhile, I, mean, I, I think from our perspective, uh, the annual review is a very good thing uh, and, and, and lessens the risk of what you're speaking of rather than increasing it. And the reason is, I think from our perspective, if we had had a annual review for the 13 years of uh, Safe Harbor's operation, and you imagine, you know, again, an agreement negotiated in the, in the late 90s, all the things that have changed in terms of data flows, business models, number of companies that were involved, Clearly, new issues were developing over that time, and and candidly, we were not in uh, regular enough uh, <coughs> communication with the Commission or with the European Data Protection Authorities to address those issues as they come up. So, I think from our perspective, much of what we will um, uh, tackle in an annual review will be um, the operational issues of how we implement this? What is a new issue that's arisen that may have, you know, pose a novel uh, uh, challenge for a enforcement agency in Europe or for the FTC? Um, and if, if, again, from our perspective, the more we're having those types of conversations and dealing things in the operation of the framework as we go, the less likely we're going to end up with a criticism which says you got to tear up the agreement, go back and negotiate the table. And so, um, and, is, and and we fully accept this as Andrea pointed out, it, um, there are, uh, we recognize that there's criticism in Europe about uh, uh, what does this mean and what, how seriously the US takes these commitments. And I think just as a part of the reality, um, it's important that there is an opportunity for folks to look and see that we are, in fact, uh, following through on our promises, not suggest that we're going to have to change our promises every year, but simply that uh, 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 critics in, in, in Europe or elsewhere, um, there's a regular opportunity to look and make sure, yes, this is working as we intended and, and uh, uh, meeting the need that we've, we've set out to do. Uh, if I may very quickly on this point, uh, I completely agree with what that said, uh, but I, th I think it's also important to point out that we are sensitive. Uh, to the needs, especially smaller companies or startups, etc. I think it would be a very good idea if startups, possibly through association mechanisms, it's, it's pretty difficult for governments to put 5,000 different startups, usually for the channel, it would be the concerns. But we certainly encourage uh, startups, uh, possibly through association or trade industry groups, uh, to make sure they are part of that. From our side, we certainly enable to include you in the dialogue. To make sure that your concerns and your needs, which might be slightly different than the needs of the you know, 10,000 employees company, are also taken into account. We have a lot of SMEs in Europe as well, actually, 99% of our industry is made of small and medium enterprises. So we are very sensitive to the needs of small companies. Yeah. So, two questions from the perspective of a company that is now in the safe harbor but isn't enforcing other mechanisms like uh, standard contract clauses to enable this transition. First, Andrea, has anything actually changed since February 29th, or are those companies just as vulnerable to the prospect of enforcement by national data protection authorities as they were prior to February 29th until the, the, the draft decision becomes final? And then my question to Ted is, assuming that the draft decision does become final and this all happens, uh, so companies will have to certify to some new principles or additional principles. Will there be some grace period or something 
like that to allow them to do so be, uh, before they find themselves outside the privacy issue. To answer your first question, my understanding, uh, which I think is a very solid understanding, uh, is that this is a draft of this decision, it's not your opinion at all. Companies cannot use in this moment uh, the drug price issue decision as a legal basis to transfer data. They need to use other forms of transfer of personal data. We cannot, on the other hand, this is not the job of the European Commission, we cannot take a position whether any data protection authority will decide or not to investigate or enforce that up to the National Data Protection Authorities to decide. Have any of them acted in between the, those two times, between now and the time period at the, uh, the end of February? If, if any data protection authorities will really start enforcement procedures, uh, is that the question? So the gap between the end of Safe Harbor, the formal, the sort of grace period that was given on Safe Harbor, and this, we're in sort of an in-between period. Yes, because okay. the other article 23 working parties and they will not start enforcement procedures until the end of January, if I remember correctly, which might or might not have to do with the fact that we found the agreement on the 2nd of February, but I will not <laughs> on that. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, ultimately, this is not, I'm not aware of the article 23 working party taking positions concerning any kind of uh, moratorium or, uh, or uh, not grace period. Uh, you have to have the European working parties, their responsibility. Uh, but again, as I said, as far as I know, at this point in time, companies should not, uh, uh, should not rely on There is no privacy. So sorry to put this so blunt. If there is a political agreement, legally speaking, there is no privacy decision that you can go to RC Shield. It's as simple as that. Hopefully, we will have it very soon. I think. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Court of Justice in its ruling did not provide for any grace here period. So as of uh, October 2nd, 2nd was the word? 6th? October. I remember it was October the 6th. Uh, October 6th. October, as of October 6th, uh, there was, it was not a valid basis for transfer. Um, uh, European Data Protection Authorities have, um, through the Article 29 Working Party, which is there, their committee, um, come together a number of times and made public statements during this process. I think they um, have uh, uh, worked to play a very constructive role through, through what is a clearly uncertain time for businesses. Um, but I think you know, there are also limits on what they can do because they are themselves bound to enforce the law and the Court of Justice has now ruled on the laws. Um, uh, so the, you know that's that's the limitation we're in now, and candidly is also the limitation we face when we have an adequacy determination, uh, so that uh, uh, it's not for um, uh, it's not for us to provide a grace period because this is really a matter of EU law. Um, what what we are doing and have already begun to uh, work on is. Uh, using this time for the approval process to make sure we're briefing companies as widely as we can so that companies can use this time to understand what the new requirements are. Now, obviously, we understand that uh, uh, companies that have just made investments in model contracts or investments in other um, uh, uh, instruments of transfer are not going to necessarily want to make new investments in implementing privacy shield until they know for certain it will be implemented. Um, but but I, I, uh, we are trying to make sure the companies uh, know everything they need to know and are ready to move forward. And internally, we're working as quickly as we can to make sure that we're ready so we can handle certifications as quickly as possible. Okay. I think, unfortunately, Tim, we need to... We need to... 
We need to end it. You do have to go. I'm so sorry. No, no, I do have five minutes. Oh, you have five minutes? Why don't we do this? Folks that need to go back to work, have other things to do, we'll give two minutes for if you want to pack up and we'll stay for, take a few seconds. Yeah, um, but we'll just take a little breather and then we'll do a couple more questions. And then wrap up. Okay, thank you all for your patience. Are you going to start again? Yeah, we're just oh, going to do five more minutes, minutes of last slides. Maybe I was clear in that. Um, and then we'll wrap this up. Just make sure we have more questions than I anticipated. Okay. So we're going to do five more minutes, a couple good questions, and wrap this up. Excellent. Uh, I think, did we already have it? Let's, yeah, right here. Yeah, hi there. I want to clarify, so um, I just want to make sure that I understand, like, are companies, are U.S. companies now transporting data safe harbor? And if the privacy shield is not only adopted or struck down, could U.S. companies face retroactive penalties? On the question of whether U.S. companies are right now transferring data under the United States Harbor Agreement, you should ask U.S. companies. Sorry, it's, uh, it's an answer from U.S. companies can give. Uh, on the second part of your question, uh, um, I was told uh, this is an not an official position of the European Commission because I have not been given a full letter by my colleagues in the legal service, but I was told in internal discussion that Technically speaking, the decision of the European Court of Justice of October 2015, which announced the safe harbor because uh, of the decision, technically speaking, the decision uh, is retroactive in terms of its effect because it announced the decision. It is as if that decision had never been legally passed. But I never, um, the consensus that I heard, and again, this is not an official position of the Commission, but the consensus that I heard was that. Companies which have been transferring their data under a safe harbor regime could be assumed to have been operating in good faith under a law that they believe that everybody believed was actually correct and valid. Now, I, I'm expressing, I want to be very clear on this, I'm expressing a personal interpretation of the situation. This is not a position of the European Commission, but I think it would be rather risky for companies to start transferring data now under the draft adequacy assessment, the draft privacy shield adequacy assessment, which has yet to receive an opinion that the European Working Party, which is yet to be validated by the Member State. And let us be clear that it's certainly not what we are expecting as the European Commission, but it's perfectly possible, maybe probable, but still possible that uh, the Article 31 Committee, which I mentioned before, might not approve 
the government makes a decision. We have no signal to be clear that that is going to be the direction, but it is a legal possibility. So companies deciding to try. Honestly, there is nothing in the legal basis on which uh, it's like as if you were you were operating under a proposed uh, bill in Congress rather than an actual act signed by the president. You don't do that. It's or you do it at your own risk, uh, quite honestly. Can I actually ask Mr. Dean to comment about U.S. companies? Is it your understanding that they're transferring data under the invalidated system? Yeah, I think, listen, I think, I think um, the reason uh, we felt such great urgency to move forward and reach an agreement after um, uh, October uh, 6th, the ruling was uh, companies depend on data and the movement of data to conduct very basic business functions. Um, uh, and uh, they need to have a valid legal basis to do that. There are other legal instruments to, uh, that allow uh, uh, transfers, um, but they not only take uh, money, but they take time um, to implement, and uh, it was unrealistic to expect the companies to turn on a dime and do that, um, and so we thought it was extremely, and, and, and I should say that there were uh, uh, potential legal challenges to those other bases for transfer. Um, and so uh, we thought it was very important to uh, move as quickly as we could uh, to a new agreement. I can't speak to what companies did in that time, but I know from hearing directly from firms that they faced a great deal of uncertainty and were pushing very hard to uh, uh, have us all you know, come to the table and get sort of through. Okay, I'm just going to do one last question. Okay, thank you both so much. Thank you all for coming.